Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Neil Rewind podcast on war and violence. My name is Anne van Maurik and my guest of today is my colleague at the NIOT, uh, Laurien Vastehout. Welcome Laurien, uh, it's great to speak with you. Thank you, pleasure to be here. Last year your book got published at Cambridge University Press and it goes by the title Between Community and Collaboration, Jewish Councils in Western Europe under Nazi Occupation. And in this interview, we will speak about this wonderful work. Could you maybe start by introducing yourself? Sure. So I'm a researcher at the NIOT, as you already said, and I predominantly focus on uh, the Second World War, the Holocaust in Western Europe. And I'm also the coordinator of the MA program in Holocaust and Genocide Studies, which we offer um, in combination with the University of Amsterdam. Wonderful. Um, and I would like to start with the, the cover of your book. Can you please describe it for us? You've got it here on the table. What do we see? Yeah, so what we see is actually five men and one uh, woman who are standing in one of the administrative headquarters of the Dutch Jewish Council. And we see a lot of piles of paper and uh, the men are writing on the documents. Um, there's one man who is directly facing us, who is looking um, to us, which I found very striking. Um, yeah, as I already said, it's presumably in the main office in, in Amsterdam. And this photo was actually taken in celebration of the 60th birthday of David Cohen, who was one of the chairmen of the Dutch Jewish Council. The idea was that he would receive a photo album for his 60th birthday. So, so we do have quite a lot of photographs on the, uh, of the Dutch Jewish Council. And this is one of them. And I find this photo so striking because you see really the administration in which the, the Jewish Council was involved. So you see really those piles of paper. Um, and what I really want to show in my book, uh, because of course another opportunity would have been to, um, to choose a deportation photograph or another photograph. But I really wanted to have this photograph because it shows how extensive the bureaucratic apparatus of the D Jewish Council was. And that's really one of the main points I want to make in my book that on a day-to-day -day basis, these Jewish councils were really busy with um, providing aid, providing support, um, answering letters, dealing with the Jewish community that was increasingly impoverished. And I think this picture really shows that administrative part of the Jewish councils uh, very does, well. Yeah, it really does show the bureaucracy behind providing assistance to the Jews in the Netherlands in these difficult times. Um, Please tell us briefly about the intentions of these, uh, of these councils, of these organizations, and about what kind of assistance to the communities we can think of. Yeah, so I think we really have to make a distinction here between the German intentions and the Jewish intentions. So what the Germans wanted in the case of Western Europe, and they already voiced these ideas uh, from very early on, but predominantly uh, in early 1941, they wanted to have a representative organization that could could communicate uh, anti-Jewish regulations to the wider Jewish community. And of course, Jewish councils in Eastern Europe and Poland already existed and they really took this example and they wanted to implant it in a way on, on Western Europe. The idea was really to have an organization that would unite all Jews under one umbrella organization. And you see in the documentation that the Germans found it really important to uh, unify the, the Jewish communities, with, which were very different in, in form, the, 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 the Jewish communities had, um, were very diverse in, in the Netherlands, uh, but especially in Belgium and France, and the Germans considered it important to have one organization that would oversee all these different groups of Jews. So that was initially 
um, the aim or the, the intention with the establishment of these, a Jewish council from the German perspective. Of course, from the Jewish perspective, uh, the intention is very different. So what you see there is that uh, the Jewish leaders who were appointed at the helm of these organizations wanted to represent their Jews in a period in which the rights uh, of their community members were increasingly threatened. They wanted to serve as a protective shield between uh, the community and the Germans. And from their own viewpoint, they also thought it might be good to centralize social wel welfare activities since these uh, activities were no longer provided by government agencies. So, for example, schooling and healthcare were things that the Jewish community itself had to take care of. And you can see from uh, the writings from these Jewish council members and leaders that they believed that through this centralization, uh, through the Jewish council, they could continue to offer the Jewish communities uh, that kind of help. So these were the initial intentions, but of course these intentions changed during the course of the war. And I think we should definitely recognize that because first, of course, it from the German perspective, again, it, it became increasingly clear what exactly the so-called final solution to the Jewish question would entail. So um, when the Jewish councils were established, of course, there were no uh, death camps yet. There, were no, there was not yet a mass uh, extermination of the Jews. But as the occupation evolved and as the war uh, progressed, you, you can see that the German intentions with what the final solution would entail uh, became clearer. Uh, and this entailed, uh, among other things, the concentration of Jews in ghettos and eventually, of course, mass murder as well. And thus, the Jewish councils were increasingly used by various rifling Jew, uh, German institutions to help achieve this. And then, of course, from the, from the Jewish perspective again, the, their room for maneuver became much smaller. So their intentions also had to change uh, because the German pressure increased and the Jewish leaders initially, of course, wanted to uh, restrict their activities to social welfare. But they were now pressured increasingly, especially in the case of Belgium and the Netherlands, for example, to encourage Jews to report themselves once they had received uh, summonses for what was called work under police supervision in the East, which was a euphemism to disguise, of course, uh, mass murder. So um, you really see that chairing these institutions or working for this in these institutions increasingly became uh, some sort of balancing act mm -hmm. in which the Jewish leaders both had to serve the interests of the Jewish community and had to give in, in a way, to the German orders to prevent uh, retaliations, for example, raids or deportations uh, to Mauthausen or other camps that were considered uh, worse than, let's say, the average camp. So the intentions uh, changed from both sides as the, core, as, the, as the war progressed. Thank you for this. You wonderfully described how the intentions changed over the course of the war over time and uh, how this probably led to many dilemmas uh, for the people who work for the Jewish councils. And I think this wonderfully leads to the next question, which is about the title of your book, Between Community and Collaboration. Right, so indeed, as you already pointed out, that's exactly the dilemma the Jewish leaders, uh, the Jewish council leaders faced, right? They were forced into a position of collaboration. The Germans really wanted these Jewish leaders to uh, to only serve their own interests, uh, to, that they would no longer care about uh, the Jewish community at large in a way, that they would increasingly make their choices only on the basis of their own self-interest and thus uh, work very closely together with uh, the German authorities and thus collaborate. And at the same time, they had to serve their, their communities. 
And what I argue in my book is that until the very end of the occupation and the existence of these Jewish councils, uh, of course, no matter how we evaluate the decisions nowadays with the benefit of hindsight, I think the community at large was still in the minds of these Jewish council leaders. Um, so they really made the decisions with the interests of the wider Jewish community uh, in their, their minds. And of course, this also led to rather controversial decisions uh, in May 1943, for example, uh, the Dutch Jewish Council agreed to provide a list of names of Jewish Council uh, employees who were no longer considered essential. Of course, they were pressured to do so by, um, by the German authorities. Um, and these people were on these lists, uh, produced by the Dutch Jewish Council, lost their protection. Because if you worked for the Jewish Council, you automatically also received protection from deportation, which sometimes turned out not to be the case after all. But, if, but in essence, you would, that's what you would get. So at this point in time, the Jewish Council reasoned that, okay, if we provide these lists, then at least, and that's of course a very controversial thing to say, but then at least we can save the part of the Jewish community that can help rebuild the Jewish community after the war. So they decided to cooperate with the Germans just to be ordered to save those who, who would be capable of re-establishing the Jewish community after the war. Yeah, they could only provide social assistance if they cooperated with the Germans. Right, right. Yes, yeah, exactly. That's the dilemma they faced. So, um, indeed, they had to, to, to make this balancing act in interest of the, uh, the Jewish community. On the one hand, uh, they had to cooperate with the Germans, on the other hand, um, and um, yeah, that's, that's in essence um, how they constantly, this, this dilemma, you also see it in the documents, this dilemma was constantly at the minds of these people. To what extent are we still serving the interests of the community now or not? And that discussion continued to um, go on until the very end, until these uh, Jewish councils were dissolved. And since the end of the war, the controversial role of the Jewish councils as facilitators of the Holocaust was, was hotly debated, right? Uh, also in current times, this role remains controversial. Why does this question of collaboration of the Jewish council remain so persistent through time? Yeah, that's a, a very good question. And of course, we've seen that very recently with uh, the controversy surrounding the, the book, The Betrayal of Anne Frank. Um, in which the role of the Jewish Council, the Dutch Jewish Council, was again completely misunderstood. Uh, the book is full of misconceptions about uh, the nature of the Jewish Council and what kind of activities it engaged in. For example, uh, the idea that the Jewish Council provided the deportation lists is repeated in this book. You see these kind of misconceptions about the Jewish Council that are also repeated or part of public memory at large. Of course, I've been wondering the same thing. Why, why is it the case that this question about collaboration keeps surfacing all the time? And I think it in part has to do with the fact that the Jewish Council was seen as the ultimate betrayal in a way, right? So all kinds of old tropes about Jews betraying Jews or Jews being responsible for their own misfortune really surface here. And we know the 1960s um, Hannah Arendt, in fact, blamed the Jewish leaders for their own destruction. In a way, she said, if the Jewish lead, uh, if the Jewish communities would have been unorganized and leaderless, there would have been victims, but not so many as there were right now. So, in a way, the blame was put on the victims, and in in that way, you follow the the, the logic of the perpetrator and the rhetoric of the perpetrator, right? Which I think is very dangerous. 
So what I did in this book is really to move away from focusing on these Jewish leaders and on their choices and instead focus on the much larger context in which they operated. And I think it is really our task as historians to understand why people behaved the way they did. Why did they, they make these choices? What was their uh, agency? What kind of leeway did they have? Um, and I think that is a much more fruitful approach than providing moral judgments. I think this is an important part of your book and we didn't touch upon it yet. You compared the Jewish councils in the Netherlands, Belgium and France. And uh, I was wondering, what does this comparison tell us? Yeah, so I've really become convinced that comparisons are uh, essential really to get a proper understanding and a proper sense of how different contexts affected the course of events. And in this specific case, um, the comparisons of course tell us many things. Um, for example, I point out in my, in my book that the socio-historical background of the Jewish councils in these three countries was very different. Um, and if we keep the comparison, for example, to Belgium and the Netherlands, we see that in the Netherlands there was a Jewish leadership that had already, before the war, um, played a very central role in the Jewish community. It had already fulfilled representative positions. And once uh, the Germans occupied the country and instigated the, um, the establishment of the Jewish council, these same people, Abraham Asher and David Cohen, were appointed as, as the leaders of the Jewish council. Um, in Belgium, the situation is very different. There you see that the pre-war Jewish leadership fled abroad um, once the German invasion was imminent and they, there was really a, a leadership's vacuum. So there were no people who had, or there were a few people only left who had fulfilled uh, leadership positions before the war uh, who could you know, occupy this, this uh, position at the helm of the Jewish council there. And what happens is that someone who was, well, not remotely, but he was not as connected to the Jewish community as the Dutch council leaders were. He had been the uh, rabbi of a very small, very ultra-Orthodox Jewish community, a Marsika Gadas community in Antwerp. He didn't have a lot of leadership experience. And then he was suddenly appointed at the, at the, uh, at the chair of the Jewish council in Belgium. And of course, then the, the, that... that is a very different um, situation to start from, right? Uh, that affected their self-perceptions. You see that in the Netherlands, we have two chairmen who are very self-confident. They are very aware that they are the ones who can make the right choices. They are quite arrogant sometimes in that regard as well. And in Belgium, that's not the case. There you see Jewish leaders who have a lot of self-doubt, who do not believe in their own leadership capacities and who also at some point decide to resign from their positions. Um, so that's, that's, that's a very interesting difference, I think, that has never been pointed out in the literature uh, because those comparisons have not been made. But they do impact the course of events and they do impact uh, the decisions people made. So this arrogance, how did it impact the course of events? Um, well, what you see is that the Jewish council, so David Cohen and Abraham Asher in the Netherlands, continued to occupy their positions. Of course, there were doubts sometimes, especially Abraham Asher sometimes voiced the idea, maybe we should stop doing this, maybe we should resign. Uh, but they continued to believe eventually very strongly that if the Jewish council would be in existence, then they would be the best ones to chair it. And even people who opposed the, um, the actions of the Jewish Council or, or its very existence did claim after the war 
you know, they were not, I disagree with the decisions they made, but if there would have been a leadership, they were the right representatives in a way. And what you see is that they continue to helm the, the organization until the very end, uh, when the council was dissolved in, in uh, 1943. Uh, well, in Belgium then, in this case, uh, these people stepped down and there's not immediately a new leadership available because of course, you know, there was already this leadership vacuum. There, so there has to be, uh, there's a lot of discussion about uh, who would succeed these people at the, at the chair of these councils. And of course, that, that results in a loss of grip, like German grip on these organizations, because there is a period of a few months in which, um, in which the Belgian Jewish Council, in a way, is dysfunctional. Um, and so that's, that's one difference that, that you could see there. But of course, I, uh, I go into the details much more in, in my book. Another major difference is that the nature of the occupation between the three countries was very different. And I won't go into details again here, but we have a military administration in Belgium and France. In Netherlands, there is a civil administration, uh, which results in the fact that the SS gets a much stronger grip or much stronger presence in the Netherlands from the very outset, which increased the pressure on the Dutch Jewish Council uh, compared to its like French and Belgian counterparts. It does have much uh, less leeway, much less um, room for maneuver. Um, what, what is the effect for the Jewish people of the loss of grip or the strengthening of this grip of the Germans? What you see in general is that the Jewish Council in the Netherlands, for example, has a much more prominent position in society. It is able, in contrast to the Belgian and the French Jewish Council, to really incorporate the existing uh, Jewish welfare organizations and other uh, Jewish representative organizations. And thus, it has kind of an autocratic role. So even people who opposed the Dutch Jewish Council became dependent on it if they wanted support or if they wanted to have information or if they needed um, uh, help in, in, what, in one way or, or the other. So people, um, Jews in the Netherlands, really became dependent on the Jewish Council. And in Belgium and France, you see that there is a lot of other uh, welfare organizations that remain in existence alongside the Jewish councils there. So people, Jews there, have uh, other organizations they can turn to. Uh, so the, the Belgian and the French Jewish councils are not as autocratic. They are not really the kind of representative organizations that, uh, that the Dutch Jewish council is. And thus, and you can also see that from uh, German reports on the functioning of all these organizations that the Germans are quite happy with the way in which the Dutch Council functions. They do have a grip on this organization. They do manage to really unite uh, all the Jews in the Netherlands under the, the umbrella of this organization. And in Belgium and France, the perspectives are much bleaker from the, from the German viewpoint in that sense. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thanks. Yeah, you just mentioned how the nature of Jewish leadership was different and uh, just as the overall context of occupation, actually, and that this, this led to leaders making different choices in those different countries. And let's talk about another important topic in your book, the larger situational circumstances from which the Jewish leaders emerged. Uh, so these leaders have often been morally condemned, as you already mentioned, framing them as collaborators. In the book, you show that reality, in fact, was way more complex, uh, so that Jewish leaders could simultaneously cooperate with Germans as well as resist. Do you have a telling example of this? 
yes. Yeah, definitely. Maybe before I go into that, we should really take into consideration that, of course, these organizations were, op they operated in a legal framework, right? So they were not established to engage in clandestine activities. Mm -hmm. But to various degrees, we do see that the Jewish councils in Western Europe, and especially Belgium and France, I should say, are used as what I call in my book cloaks for clandestine activities. Of course, these Jewish councils had resources and information that was very valuable. And thus, there were people in these organizations, such, such as Chaim Peroman in Belgium, who uh, worked for the Belgian Jewish Council, but also worked for a resistance organization. And he attempted to get access to deportation lists through his position in the, in the Belgian Jewish Council. And he also used money of the Belgian Jewish Council to facilitate his illegal activities. It even went a step beyond that, because you can see in, in France, in the uh, what was initially the unoccupied zone, and uh, later we can refer to as the southern zone, when the Germans invaded the south of France in uh, November 1942, um, you see that the Jewish Council uh, chairman actively faci facilitated or even themselves engaged in such activities. Uh, and I think the best example of that is uh, Raymond Raoul Lambert, who was the leader of the UGIF Sud, so the Jewish Council, the French Jewish Council uh, in the southern zone, and he ensured that people he knew were active in armed uh, resistance groups, that they would receive positions in the council so they could continue their activities under its guise. Uh, the, and, and because they received uh, a position in the French Jewish Council, they could travel more easily also to the northern zone. Uh, they could build a clandestine network. And you really see thus that these people take on a dual role. Uh, and they really, um, they realize that there were mo multiple ways in which they could help the Jews, both legal and illegal. And maybe uh, one of my favorite examples of this is uh, that of Juliette uh, Stern, who operated in the French occupied zone. Um, and within the uh, French Jewish Council, she was responsible for children whose parents had been arrested and who were housed in the um, uh, UGIF uh, care homes for children. Uh, these were illegally operating care homes that uh, the Germans, of course, knew about. And she created a secret parallel institution to the official Jewish Council department for which she worked, which was called uh, Service 42B. And she got in contact with uh, clandestine organizations that illegally dispersed these children uh, among non-Jewish families. And thus she managed to, to save quite uh, a lot of these uh, children. And of course, that was a very dangerous thing to do. Uh, she really put her own life at risk in doing so. And I think that these examples really highlight that we should pay much more attention to the fact that many people in this period of time, including the leaders of the Jewish Council, were looking for different ways in which they could deal with, uh, with the threats of the German occupation and their actions and their choices were not always consistent. Some of the Jewish leaders at times even acted against the, the legal policies they were officially propagating, right? And... Um, as I write in my book, in a very, uh, in an inherently complex situation, they could simultaneously cooperate and uh, resist. And I think that's, that's something we should definitely take uh, into consideration. Yeah, you just talked about these nuances and these, these dilemmas that these leaders of these councils had. And that made me think about one thing I read in your book about the title of your book, Between Community and Collaboration. And in your book, you 
elaborates on this word collaboration, since people on the one hand tried, of course, uh, to serve the interests of, of the Jewish people, and on the other hand, they had to cooperate with the Germans. Tell us about this. Indeed, so my, my title is Between Community and Collaboration. I use the word collaboration in the title, but at the same time, I indicate very early on in the preface of the book that I do not want to use this word collaboration in the context of Jewish councils in Western Europe. Because I do believe, um, as I already pointed out, that these people made choices with the interest of the wider Jewish community in mind. And of course, there's a lot of things we can say about that. We can condemn the, the, the choices they made. Uh, but at the same time, I really believe that the interest of the wider community was, was in, in the minds of these Jewish council leaders when they made decisions. And uh, that's why I chose the word cooperation, because because of that, because they, they, they did not collaborate. There was no ideological identification, of course, also with the aims of the Germans. And I think, and other scholars have, have done this as well, but I think we should definitely make a distinction between these concepts, uh, collaboration, cooperation, uh, compliance, um, resistance, and so on. And, and that we should definitely very carefully think through what exactly we mean by these concepts and how we use them. Thank you, Laurine. Thank you for this. Thank you for being here. Um, your comparative work really enables us to gain a full understanding of, of the many dilemmas of this period. And it wonderfully illuminates how the history of, of the Holocaust in Europe got shaped. Uh, thank you for being here and uh, for telling us the, about this. Thanks for the invitation. It was a, it was a pleasure. Thank you.